What a strange tale of English mysticism and folklore magic. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and today I'm discussing the first half of April's book, Treacle Walker by Alan Garner, published in 2021. So each month I take a book, I split it in two and discuss it on the second and last Fridays. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes, so please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So I've read up to chapter 10, which is on page 75. It's quite a short book. There's no trigger warnings or content warnings that I really need to give out. I've removed any swear words. I don't think there are any swear words in this. There's a bit of vocabulary that you might be interested in learning about before I start the summary. So in the olden days, bones were collected for sale to glue manufacturers. The bones were used to make glue. And a rag and bone man used to collect discarded clothes and bones and other low value items that were then resold to merchants. And also a donkey stone comes into the novel. A donkey stone was a type of scouring block. It was used mostly in the mill towns in the north of England to highlight the leading edge of stone steps. Now, we start the novel with Joe, I presume a young boy from the blurb. He hears a steam train called Noonie go past at midday. Below his window is a rag and bone man and his cart. And Joe exchanged some old pyjamas and a, quote, lamb's shoulder blade he had picked from a molehill by the railway embankment for some donkey stone which as i say is a stone used for polishing stairs and also a strange possibly magical jar however this donkey stone has quotes one side was plain on the other was cut the outline of a horse legs and tail outstretched head forward long it reminds me of the mystical white horse on the front cover of the book and coincidentally it also reminds me of the Uffington white horse where I happened to walk recently with my brother. It's an ancient prehistoric hill figure formed from deep trenches filled with crushed white chalk and we've got these beautiful sinuous lines in it. Now he notices that bizarrely his name is written on the rag and bone man's box of treasures. The treasures are beautifully described. Listen to this, quote, The chest was full, bedded in layers of silk. There were cups, saucers, platters, jugs, big and small, coloured, plain, simple, silvered, gilded, twisted, scenes of dancing, scenes of killing, ships, oceans, seas, beasts, birds, fishes, whales, monsters, houses, castles, mansions, halls, cherubs, satyrs, nymphs. Mountains, rivers, forests, lakes, fields and clouds and skies. I like that scene of dancing and then scenes of killing. Quite a powerful contrast. It does remind me a little bit of the enumerated descriptions in the previous book, The House of Spirits by Isabel Allende, if you'd read that. And there were also some obscure references that I had to Google. For example... Elephant Eggs in a Rhubarb Tree. Now that's a reference to an early 70s TV programme. And they're still phrases I'm completely stumped by. For example, 
the rag and bone man says to Joe, cob you, cob you then. What on earth does cob you mean? Do you know? Write it below, tell me. I'd love to know. Now, Joe mentions that, quote, I've been poorly, and he does have to wear an eye patch to help correct his vision. So there's a bit of a question now. I wonder if Joe's sight will improve. He says, quote, I've got one lazy eye. I must wear a patch over the good one so the other will catch up. Now, Joe invites who we learn is Treacle Walker into his house. There's a bang at the door, and even though it was bright and sunny outside, he opens the door to snow and night. It's very bizarre. Treacle Walker must be some kind of magic man. And from the type of language he's using, I'm guessing possibly from another world or dimension. Definitely has the feel of a children's book so far. Got a young protagonist. He's dressed as Master Kopok and he's reading a comic. And we've got this strange otherworldly man and a bizarre dreamlike experience. However, maybe Joe is older than I'm presuming. Anyway, Treacle Walker asks him to polish the front doorstep with the donkey stone that he received in exchange for those pyjamas. And Joe notices his name on the donkey stone, Joseph Kopak. So there we've got a question again. Why is Joe Kopak appearing everywhere? The name Joe Kopak, as if by magic. It also appeared on the chest in Treacle Walker's wagon. Now Treacle Walker blows on the bone of a dead man and a cuckoo responds from far away. Now Joe gets up from bed to hear Noonie, which is this train or wagon perhaps disappearing off down the road. And Joe considers the new stone and jar. Quote, the jar was white, glazed and chipped. Under the rim was painted in blue, poor man's friend. And beneath the price, one and a half. On the other side was, prepared only by Beach and Barnicott, successors to the late Dr. Roberts, Bridport. Very interesting. He looks at the jar and accidentally rubs some green paste onto his good eye from the jar. And Joe hears a cuckoo and tries to follow its call outside. But the sun is hot and his sight is poor, so he returns home. I'm thinking at this point, where are his parents? How old is Joe? And the book certainly has this very mystical kind of medieval feel to it. And there's no one around. The only friends Joe seems to have are this treacle walker and the animals like the cuckoo. There are constant references to, quote, no one in Barncroft or Pool Field or Big Meadow or on the track between the top and bottom gates and trees hid the way up from there to the heath. It reminds me a little bit of Comala and Pedro Paramo, a bit like a ghost town. Is Joe even alive? Could he be some kind of vampire? There's this quote, quote, the sun was on his neck and he began to feel dizzy. Vampires don't like sun. He had been out too long and should not have run. Light glared and he pulled the patch down. The elastic slipped and he moved it and wiped the sweat from below the band. His finger touched his eyelid and jagged light and pain filled his head. And at the end of the chapter, it says, quote, 
He went upstairs to the tall mirror in his bedroom and looked. There was nothing wrong, only a smudge of green violet where a stained finger had touched the lid of the good eye. So I wonder what strange substance was in that jar. Now, Joe is at the optician. So bang goes the theory of it being some medieval person or even a ghost or a vampire. Well, maybe it could still be a vampire, I guess. Anyway, the optician discovers that he's seeing things that aren't there with his good eye. He says to Joe, quote, there's not a lot wrong with your eyes, Joe. What beats me is your sight. He's able to see things. Joe follows the sound of a cuckoo across the countryside. Now, bizarrely, he takes a catapult and a stone with him. Does he want to kill it? Those aren't really the toy things of a modern young boy, I'm thinking. This is someone from the 1950s, 1960s. He bumps into a bog man called Finn Amran. Quote, he wore a close hood made of leather tied under his chin. The rest of him was bare. Hood and skin and eyes were all the same copper brown. Now, interestingly, he's only visible with his good eye. He reminds me of like the peat man that I've seen in a museum. Is it the British Museum? Possibly. Sort of this very brown, shrunken figure of a human body. Now, Finn Amron says that he has the glamourie. Quote, you have the glamourie, said the man, in just the one. And that's no bad thing if you have the knowing. She'll be the governor while you learn the hang of it. And when you've got that, you'll be fine as fililoo. But you need the both of them. What sees is seen. And so this, I presume, is why these strange creatures like Thin Amran and Treacle Walker can see Joe. Now, glamoury reminds me of the word gloaming, which means twilight or dusk, the border of two different worlds, the world of daylight and the world of night. And with glamoury, Joe is able to see a new world. Now, Joe starts reading a comic about someone called Stonehenge Kit, the hero, being chased by Brit Basher and wizard villains. The comic comes alive and Kit crawls into Joe's world through the comic. The two evil characters do as well and say they will deal with Joe. Quote, and biff him for that brick and pit he got. Now Joe accidentally drops a marble into the comic. We've got this weird mingling of worlds. It's really strange. I'm not sure I'm loving it the way it's done. It seems a bit haphazard and not that unified, but maybe my feelings will change. Now, Treacle Walker makes another appearance. Interestingly, he requires permission from Joe to enter his house, a bit like a vampire. He translates Joe's strange words that he wrote at the opticians from Latin into English. Quote, the stone is small, of little price, spurned by folks, more honoured by the wise. Then Treacle Walker comments, quote, friend, you saw, yet you do not see. He's making the energy there between seeing the world and not understanding it, as Joe does with his bad eye, and being able to write and see a foreign language and yet not being able to understand it. He ends the chapter 
by saying that he should have a certain marble ready, quote, when thin Amran wakes and cuckoo calls. Ooh, intriguing. Or perhaps just a bit dull. What do you think? Having a marble ready? Now, Joe reads one of his Stonehenge kit comics and sees the wizard and the Brit basher trying to get revenge on Joe. However, the threshold to his house is protected by the donkey stone given to him by Treacle Walker. We're left with what will happen next. Find out next week. But Joe can't find next week's comic. So, got a question there. Will the wizard and Brit basher gain access to Joe's house? I'm not really sure what to make of this book so far. It's so riddly and I feel like Joe is lonely and has no friends. I feel a bit sorry for him. The book half ends there with us wondering what's going to happen with the wizard and Brit Basher, whether they'll gain access to Joe's house. I feel it's just a, quote, look beyond the reality of things type of book and that I've read a million of these kind of books in countless other ways and that the real heart and message about the world is you know you need to look beyond the reality of things but this book I'm not really getting any love or warmth so far from it partly because I'm confused as to Joe's background he seems to be just a cardboard cutout character he has no history he has no parents he appears to be a mere function of the implied author's ideas about sight and seeing beyond the reality of things now that might might be just me what do you think what are your thoughts so we've got a few questions the name joe Coppock was appearing everywhere as if by magic why was that and where is this treacle walker from and what was that green substance that was in his in the jar he smeared it on the eye did that affect his glamoury vision and will his sight improve? Remember when he said, quote, I've got one lazy eye, I must wear a patch over the good ones, the other will catch up. Hopefully, his sight will improve, I'm hoping. Will the wizard and the Brit basher get access to Joe's house? So there are a few ideas in that first half, I think. The idea of confusion. Treacle Walker is a deliberately confusing character and he bandies around confusing phrases. I've already mentioned that cob you then quote. But even Joe says, quote, this is right at the beginning, can you not make sense? And then Treacle Walker spouts incomprehensible words like Lombahomok and Hurlothrumbo. Treacle Walker is definitely otherworldly. And we're made to feel as confused by his language as poor Joe. There was some great rhythmic writing in there. Do you remember when he was going through the box? Cups, saucers, platters, jugs, big and small, coloured, plain, simple, silver, gilded, twisted, scenes of dancing, scenes of killing, ships, oceans, seas, beasts, birds, fishes, whales, monsters, houses, castles, mansions, halls, cherubs, satyrs, nymphs, mountains, rivers, forests, lakes, fields and clouds and skies. And when he plays on the flute made from the jawbone of a man, quote, it was a tune with wings, trampling things, tightened strings, boggarts and bogles and brags on their feet, the man in the oak, sickness and fever, that set in long lasting sleep the whole great world, with the sweetness of sound the bone did play. 
all those rhymes, wings, things, strings. You can almost hear the tune of the melody in the words. I do like that writing, that very rhythmic musical writing. Now Treacle Walker tells Joe to use the donkey stone to clean his steps with water from the well. And as he does so, he notices his name again. And it's interesting how the text Joseph Kopok is such an important and magical part of the narrative so far. And it's a very formal version of his name. So why is the name Joseph Kopok appearing, whereas Joe Kopok is his name? Why is it not Joe? It's interesting as well, that idea of Joe's age. It does say, an introspective young boy, Joseph Kopok, squints at the world with his lazy eye. This is the blurb. Living alone in an old house, he reads comics, collects birds' eggs and plays with his marbles. When one day a rag and bone man called Treacle Walker appears, exchanging an empty jar of a cure-all medicine and a donkey stone for a pair of Joseph's pyjamas and a lamb's shoulder blade, a mysterious friendship develops between them. A fusion of myth, magic and the stories we make for ourselves. Treacle Walker is an extraordinary novel from one of our greatest living writers. So we know he's an introspective young boy and even Treacle Walker says, quote, young fella my lad, whatever that means. I guess it means young. But there's nothing to say in the novel really that he is young apart from that comment by Treacle Walker and the blurb. There's many words that are made up in the novel or appear to be made up. I've Googled them and I couldn't find them, but maybe they're taken from some archaic books that the author has got an interest in. For example, Glamoury. G-L-A-U-M-O-R-I-E. Finn Armoran, the big man, says, quote, Use the two glims, their eyes, Use the two glims together till we get you home, and after, don't wear your clout cloth. For though at the first you'll be in a flustication, flustication? With it all, I guess a fluster. You'll be needing the both, I'll tell you. What scene is seen? Come with us, said Joe. I don't feel right. I'll not, said the man. I must have me bog and me trees, else I'll be drying out, and that won't do. The sweet smiling of the step will hold you safe, but we can sit here on the bank till you're fit to go. And you can tell me why you were clown jandering in me bog at all. So we've got clown jandering. That actually means running rampant over. Glim is eyes. It's an archaic word for candles. Flustication means in a fluster. He goes on, quote, Now think on what I've got to tell you. And to show the meaning, put the clout to the glamoury and use the glim that's in the merly goes. Merly goes? Is that from murky and swirly, not good eyes, maybe? Now, just as Joe is making sense of this new world, we are making sense of these new words, words that seem to hint at the real world, just as Joe's eyes do, but also needing an added layer of interpretation. I feel like Joe is learning his new world and I am learning mine with all these uncanny words. Was that the same for you? We've got more of those words. We've got fine as fililoo. And if you turn to page 60, we've got a whole load of these words. This is Treacle Walker. Joseph is asking where he's been. Quote, I've been through Hickety, Pickety, France and High Spain by Crinkum, Crankums, Crooks and Straits. And I'm at your pair with my ears in my hat, my back in my coat and two squat, kickering, tattery shoes for the roadwayish water. The sun is not good for you, as I recall. So what? Says Joe. Your visage is wan. If we may, let us go to the chimney and calm our thoughts. Why? 
You're a trifle furibund. Chara. They went to the house. Treacle Walker paused at the step. May I enter? It's up to you, said Joe. All these made-up words, or perhaps words that I just don't know. Furibund, for example. All in all, a really interesting first half read, I think. I would love to know your comments on the book. Please write them below, and maybe I can discuss them at the, the next podcast. Or we can discuss them over email. Now, I'd like to have a quick chat about last month's book, House of Spirits by Isabel Allende, translated by Magda Bogan. There were some wonderful comments on the web and on Goodreads, and I'd love to share some of the thoughts that I saw. So Claudia said the following. Gabrielle Gathia Maquez, comparisons aside, it's hard to review this book without references to the magical realism and the narrative stars of Latin America. I truly believe that anyone not familiar with the above mentioned would likely be a bit thrown, even put off by these influences. Still, this is a brilliantly written story, an epic in its truest sense, covering four generations of women, with a man as the common thread between them. It races through the simplicity of the old world into the complexity of an increasingly global existence and the insistence that this country enter into the morphing global economy and political stage. The true classics know how to do one particular thing very well. They are able to capture the reader with the emotive ties to the characters in a microcosm while placing them in a grander milestone setting, historically. Many stories have attempted this balance and fall short in one aspect or another. Either the personal attachment is emphasised at the expense of the historical detail or the historical events are diluted to platform the characters. In this case, both are developed successfully because we are introduced and weaned onto the family first and then become involved in their plight as gradually as they do. Political upheaval grew into their lives the way it grew into narration. It's also important to mention that by definition, this won't be a political struggle that most of the capitalist population will be familiar with. Some background knowledge of the history of Chile does come in handy, especially when references are thrown in enigmatically. The poet is mentioned sporadically at first, then his existence becomes poignant for a moment. The reference to Neruda, his real-life exile, his political position, all of these are only subtly mentioned throughout the plot and he is never referred to by name. So it's interesting that Elend refers to censorship by censoring herself. Clearly a conscious decision on her part to separate this historical novel from being a direct documentation of the history of Chile. The same holds true for the events leading up to and after the military coup and the Pinochet situation. This story shows us what it might have looked like behind the scenes, what the papers were not reporting, what the news programming was cleaning up on orders of the heads of state. This is what this story is about. In Latin America, these kinds of events are innumerable. They're part of the history, but they cannot be told for the very censorship that this story speaks of. So they're told in novels and are thinly veiled as magical and exaggerated so as to hide behind such protection. But they are real, and to this day, there is a weekly procession in one of the plazas in Santiago, Chile, of people who lost family members to the military government. Forty years later, there are still hundreds who have not been accounted for. With this story, Alend hooks us, reels us in, and binds us to these characters. They're funny, eccentric, temperamental, ideal, strong, weak, and so much more. Their dimensionality begs us to invest in them emotionally so that when their lives become shaken by their setting, we're as invested in how they will deal with the challenge. Thank you. And Kevin Ansbro said, quote, The House of the Spirits is a tumultuous epic which chronicles four generations 
of two extraordinary families. The eponymous house is large, it boasts three courtyards and the Chilean version of the Adams family. Imagine too, if you will, Barabbas, the somewhat unnatural domesticated dog slash horse who has ill-advisedly fed olive oil until he covered the house from top to bottom with diarrhea. Blech. Following in the giant footsteps of Gabriel García Márquez, Alende lets rip with her own brand of El Realismo Magico. Strong female roles abound in this captivating story from Rosa, who has the maritime grace of a mermaid, to Clara, the soothsayer, whose apocalyptic visions include exploding horses and cows that are hurled into the sea, and Transito Soto, the entrepreneurial prostitute who symbolises success in the face of adversity. A mainstay of magical realism is that characters are expected to be beautifully realised and Len doesn't disappoint, not for one bit. Her lead goes to reluctant altruist Esteban Treber, whose expectations of grandeur befit his predigree, but not his habitude. Treber, wishing to mine for gold, takes control of a lawless chunk of godforsaken land. Despite improving the social conditions of the peasants under his patronage, he becomes the most hated and feared scumbag in the entire region. When done with kicking hens, throwing tantrums and raping village girls, he expects his subordinates to show him some gratitude. Seriously, what a complete... Beep, beep. Dichotomies abound, good and evil, triumph and tragedy, and the unjustified pomposity of Troeba sets him up for a hubristic turn of events. I love this novel. I'm a latecomer to a land, and with this one story she has propelled herself onto my top tier of writers... That said, the magical start to the story gradually capitulates to a more realismo style and does become something of a slog at times. Despite this, the craftsmanship of her writing never diminishes. The sex is fleshy and sweaty and the book is awash with anarchists, prostitutes and tables that move just by the power of thought. Ay caramba, there's even a bazooka-wielding president, as if that could ever happen. Stifles a snigger. The House of the Spirits is stormy, dramatic and beautifully written. I even missed it when I was away from it. Thanks, Kevin, for those thoughts. Now, Debbie said, one, I love Isabel Allen's writing style, and two, since February 2022, it's my self-appointed Classics Month, Allen's debut novel must be included. How does one write a review for an epic book such as this that others haven't already said? I will try by sharing my humble personal thoughts. Positives. One, Alain's unique gift of telling the saga of one Chilean family combining magical realism with authenticity is incredibly awe-inspiring in its looks into humanity. For the first two-thirds of the book, Alain builds the domestic history of her characters and then expertly weaves them into the frightening political upheaval of their homeland in the final third. Two, Alain believably makes destiny and karma a huge part with her strong characters, especially with, in my opinion, the despicable Esteban Troiba. I agree. Her depiction of this patriarch shows that no matter how powerful you are, how horrific you act, events and actions from your past can still bring you to your knees. And three, I felt like I was living through Alain's vivid descriptions of Chile's political history from the 1930s to the 1970s, the land both in the city and in the country, and the homes and lives of her characters. She leaves out the negatives. I wonder what they might be. If you're listening, write them below. Thanks so much, Debbie, for your thoughts on that. Now, Becky gave the novel two and a half stars on Goodreads. She says, quote, 
Let's be honest, Isabel Allende is a chiclet that you're not embarrassed to read on the Metro. It's got just enough faux Garcia Marquez magical realism light charm to fool people into thinking it's moderately intellectual. I don't have a big problem with that as long as people realise what's going on because Allende is a fine storyteller. This novel, her first and most famous, is a fairly traditional family saga following three generations of an upper-class Chilean family from the early 20th century to the Pinochet era. The writing is lovely throughout, with vivid descriptions, particularly of places and characters' physical surroundings. The book's weak spot, however, is characterisation. For a genre that depends so much on having the reader care deeply about the characters, Alend does a pretty poor job accomplishing that. I think her main problem is that she hadn't quite yet mastered the show-don't-tell rule of writing. Instead of revealing Esteban Treba's stubbornness and pride through his actions, she'd just tell us, quote, Esteban Treba was stubborn and proud. It was mostly unconvincing and made many of the characters seem flat and two-dimensional. And you never really got that important sense of who they were as people. I have to say I agree. She continues, other problems. Alente has always been an author who writes about strong women, but the women in this book, not so much. I mean, when one male character beats his wife until her teeth fall out, Clara, her response, depicted as brave by the narrator, is not to talk to him for a couple of years. Silence is the author's idea of female empowerment and resistance. Huh? Anyway, on top of that, the only sections of first-person narration in the novel are from the point of view of the patriarch. So yeah, problematic on that level, and just a nitpick. But the way she overuses foreshadowing, oh, completely agree with that. Dramatically hinting at what's going to happen a few chapters on is effective once or twice, but not over and over. I couldn't agree more. Well, I realise it sounds like I hated the book, but as a story, it was pretty enjoyable. At least the second half, which tracks Chilean politics and real-life events through Salvador Alain's election, and Pinochet's military coup is uninteresting and unsurprising to anyone who knows anything about 20th century Chilean history. But the first half, which is more of a romantic love story, is pretty good. I'm keeping this at three stars for the soft spot I have for Alain's later books, which tell stories that are, I think, more unique and compelling. Thanks so much, Becky, for your thoughts on that. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. Leave a comment below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I also love suggestions for future books to read, so let me know. Talking of next books, the next book will be M. John Harrison Light for May's book. That will be after the next podcast on the second half of Treacle Walker in two weeks. That's the 28th of April. If you enjoyed the podcast, please can you give it a thumbs up or subscribe or give it five stars on your episode app. Thank you very much. Anyway, I look forward to discussing the last half of Treacle Walker in two weeks. See you then.